Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. Chapter 11 is finished, and surprise, surprise, it prompted zero discussion. I did leave this prompt. George does not care about you whatsoever. I think I ranted at the end of yesterday's episode um, about how apparent it is that George does not care about his reader. He just wants to say what he wants to say, and then he wants you to compliment him. And that's all he wants. And he doesn't care about your well-being. It's obvious in the way he's written this that he does not care about you. And that pisses me off so much. I went as far yesterday, maybe a little bit hyperbolic, I admit, yesterday to say, if, if, he, if, if you said to George, hey, George, if you say these things to me, if you write this stuff in your book, I'll die. Don't ask me how I know that. Some mystical magic's happened where if you say this stuff to me, I'll die. He would want to say it anyway. He, he does not care what happens to you, the reader. He just wants to say... He, he just wants to write this stuff down. Zero regard for how the experience is to the reader to read it. It is so boring that I genuinely feel like, George, we we only get a limited amount of life. You know what I mean? Like, life is short, and you are insisting that I spend hours of my life doing, reading stuff that has in no way been written for my benefit. There's no benefit to me in reading this, or anyone. I just, I can't see anyone ever getting benefit out of a sentence in this book. There's not one sentence in this book that's been like, oh, that was a nice sentence. That was good and enjoyable to read. It's just dog shit. And he doesn't care. He does not care. So in a way, he's, it's like he's a vampire. He's just sucking your life away second by second. He can't get enough of it. He just wants to take up as much of it as he can. He wants to suck away as much of your life as he possibly can, right? And he does not care. I hate that. If you're going to make art, it's for the benefit of the person receiving the art, not for the artist. Um, otherwise, you're literally doing a disservice to the world by making your so-called art. Um, anyway, I hate George so much. It makes me cringe. I cannot wait to be finished with this book. I, like, I just want my life back. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, like this book right now, and look, I'm working full-time job and then I'm doing baby stuff and I'm literally getting a window every day I'm getting a window every day to do something for me, right? And that window and more, that window and more, like I'm, my work life is suffering because of this. My relationship is suffering because of this. My parenting is suffering because of this. It's encringing on all those things because it's taking so much time of my day where I've only got a window of half an hour to do something for myself. That's gone because of this book. And then half an hour to do the other responsibilities I need to do. They're all getting encringed upon by this book. And George does not care. I hate this book so much. I hate this experience so much. Like, I've just got this feeling like I'm missing these moments of my son's precious first year, right? And I'm, I'm catching a lot of the moments. It's not like I'm not there. I'm home with him all day, right? But I just have this feeling like, imagine... I know every new parent must feel this like, oh man, I need to look after my health. I don't want to miss... You know, I don't want to miss my son's life. I want him to be a full-grown, proper adult with his own kids by the time I check out so that I don't feel like I missed him growing up. And I, you know what I mean? Like, it's a weird thing. I would be so, um, I don't know, sorry to him if, like, you know, I died while he was still a kid, for example. And I'm not sick, by the way. I'm not dying. But I've just got this feeling like, if that happened, 
and I only had a few years with this kid and a good chunk of those few years, like a good chunk of the time I get to spend with him was taken up by George Moore's hail and farewell. There is no worse thought in my head than that. There is no worse thought in my head. You know what I mean? Like if I had a year to live and I had to spend some of every day doing this instead of experiencing as much as I could with my son. I don't have a year to live, by the way. I've got, I'm perfectly healthy. I'm just giving a hypothetical. You know what? George would still insist that I read this because he does not care. He does not care about me or anything else. That's how this book feels to me right now. It's actually like impacting my livelihood. Am I being hyperbolic? Yes. <laughs> like, I'm obviously making a mountain out of molehill. I'm obviously, like, overreacting. I know that. But that's how I feel from this book. Being so shit. Nothing's ever been as shit to me as this book. You know? Like, you know when you buy... You know you go to the grocery store, you buy a bag of grapes, and you get it home, and they're all rotten? And you go, oh, this is a rotten bag of grapes. I gotta go get my money back. That rotten bag of grapes has more value than this book. This book is worse than that. Chapter 12 of this dog shit ass piece of crap goes like this. It was three years after that the colonel asked me to go see some friends who lived in the Clendonskin district. Oh, he's so cool for having friends. And we followed the keys talking of the women we were going to see and her sisters in Galway. And when we reached the long road leading to the moat house, the group of trees on Stella's motives recalled her and so vividly that I could not keep myself from speaking of her, bragging about a girl he banged. I have no peace since her death. Not every day I said, nor every night. Else... I should be dead by now, or mad, conscious of spasmodic and no warning. Consciousness is spasmodic and no warning is given. Any sight or sound is enough. She painted those trees. They hung in my room, feathery against the blue sky that has changed to grey, to everlasting grey. A touch of rhetoric had come into my speech, yet I was speaking truthfully, and the colonel tried to soothe me. Far out, dude. Like... For a sentence there, he was talking with a little bit of, you know, colour. And it was bad, by the way. He didn't do a good job of it. And then he has this meta acknowledgement like, oops. Oh, whoa. Hey, whoa. Whoa, sorry, I blacked out for a second there. For a second, I tried to make my speech interesting. Let me, sorry, let me shake that off. Um, What are you trying to do here, George? What are you trying to do? Like, make everything as disinteresting as possible. Is that the goal? Blame. Of course, no blame attaches to me, and yet I have wronged Florence. But I never felt any remorse on her account, only in Stella's. The question isn't whether I gave her the best advice that might have been given in the circumstances. I gave her the only advice that was possible for me to give. I knew nothing but good of the man. And the advice I gave was the only advice she would have taken. No, I cannot reproach myself with anything, and yet, and yet, why did I speak in her favour, his favour? And that is what I am afraid no one will ever be able to tell me. Was it because I wished to free myself from all responsibility? There was none. She took her chance with me, and I took mine with her. An equal chance in these days when women desert their lovers as frequently as men desert their mistresses. We were bound by no contract. It was no passing fancy, no infidelity that parted us again and again. I have given thanks to my stars, to my destiny. To the providence that watches over me that it is impossible to trace any connection between any confession to her and her announcement to me of her marriage, more than a year intervened. I can't see that any blame attaches to you for the advice that you gave, nor can I, yet her death overshadows my life and for no reason. I see, You see, I told her, but not till she had admitted that she was going to be married or was thinking of being married, that I had gotten a letter from Elizabeth inviting me to come to see her. She had neglected me for years ever since her marriage, but she was in... Is, she is the only woman who I did not weary. Sister, mistress, I said, the colonel. He does not understand those subtleties, kept silent. I had expected him to ask why I had told Stella of the letter, but the colonel never asked personal questions, and I doubt if he was very much interested in my story. It may have been to drive her into this marriage that I told her that this was another woman had written to me. What do you think? I don't think it is like, at all likely. She was determined on her marriage before you spoke. she spoke to you about it. You have no reason to suppose that her marriage was not a happy one. On the contrary, there are many reasons to think that it was a very happy one. 
I don't see there is any cause for blame, nor do I, but her death is the only, the one thing that I wish had not happened to me. What? Her death is the one thing that I wish had not happened to me. Can you believe, like, that's George in a nutshell. Her death is the one thing that I wish had not happened to me. That sums up George to a T. I waited for the colonel to continue the inquiry, but he showed no inclination to do so, and his indifference exasperated me without shocking me as Edward had done when I had gone to him for sympathy. Throwing all the blame upon myself and he had answered, why didn't she mind herself, the pure peasant speaking through him, and to escape from the atmosphere of the cabin I looked towards the colonel. Any mention I thought of Sarsfield and the siege of Limerick would rouse him, but having no desire for a historical disquisition at that moment, I began to think out the whole story again, finding some consolation in remembering that it was not for any mere woman I had crossed two seas, but for her whom I had sought for twenty years, turning from the many fallacious forms and vain appearances, till at length I discovered the divine reciprocation of all my instincts and aspirations, the prophetic echo of my eternity. One summer's day among the luncheon party in the Savory Hotel, certain moments cannot pass from us, and I do not think I shall ever outlive the moment when I rose from my chair to meet my fate in the Savory Mo Savoy Motel, my readers do not need telling that the moving tints of a shot-like, shot-silk gown did not cover a dusky body from Italy or Spain. They have guessed already that my fate came to me out of Flanders in all the fair bloom of her twentieth summer. The full flower-like eyes, the round brow, the golden hair, and dryad by Rubens in appearance and whittle with dryad's nature. If Ruben dryad were to come upon a traveller's fire in a forest, she would sit by it, warming her shins as long as it lasted, and then depart for lack of thought to rouse the ashes into flame. And I have often thought that Elizabeth treats the art as the dread, the traveller's fire. She warms her shins and departs, and overtaking satyrs and fawns is in mossy dells, abandons herself again to her instincts. I can pick up a thread, I have heard her say, but continuity I cannot abide, and feeling that it would have been stupid to answer, you look upon me as a thread that can be picked up and dropped with every change of fancy, I fell to thinking how, after a long day's journey, I had come upon Elizabeth in a hilly country, fronting great prospects of pasture in which Keen wandered in long herds, and how she led me day after day through the woods, through sunny interspaces that I remember for many a pleasant frolic in the warm, fragrant grass. I remember the tasseled branches of the larches, the blackbird in the underwood, the thrush on the high branch, and the mocking laughter of the yaffle. When we crossed from wood to wood, but Elizabeth remembers nothing, the dryad is without our human memories. All the wiles of this summer pleasant somebody was dying near us, we were parted for many months, and when we came together again, our love story was no longer told in the woods, yet she seemed contended with me for a lover. And so docile was she in this Michaelmas summer of our love that I said, There will be no change. I wonder, asked, I asked her in my folly, if we shall love each other always, if in ten years' time. She laughed, and three weeks after she took me aside to confide a strange project to me. You don't mind, darling, if I don't see you tonight. I prefer to tell you Dash has asked me if he might come. I can't roll refused. You don't mind. It would be vain for me to try to oppose your wishes, and you would hate me if I did. How well you know me. How clever you are. The pair of shanks and ears that had come into our garden through the underwood disappeared soon after, never to return, and we resumed our love story, and then another pair of shanks and another pair of ears appeared, and these were succeeded by more shanks and ears, and the thought became clear that the last leaves were falling and that no renewal of our love would ever happen in my life again. Love, she has said, is for the young and for the middle-aged, and it, I was growing old. The love of the senses was burning out, and it would be better to quench it by a sudden resolve than to keep blowing upon the ashes. By fifty, I said to myself, we should have learned that human life is a lonely thing and cannot be shared, and that we are further from our mistresses when they throw their arms about us than when we are when we sit by the fire. Elderly men dreaming of the kisses given to, and the words said in distant years, recollection is the resource of the middle-aged. So says Turgenev in one of his many beautiful stories, so did I reason with myself, and for two or three months I believed that love would never flame up in my life again, and on one evening, 
a lady whom I had known many years ago crossed a restaurant and I ran to her for news of a friend of hers. She had not heard of Doris for some years and in reply to my question if Doris were married, she said she had not heard of any marriage and becoming suddenly anxious about this girl, I wrote to her relations who answered that Doris was not married but my letter had been forwarded to her and this letter came in a delightful answer from Florent, Florac. A town that is will be sought vainly on the map. It will be discovered, however, in a story entitled The Lovers of Orlais, and if the reader of Vale be wishful to know what happened to Orlais, he can do so in a volume entitled Memoirs of My Dead Life, but he need not read this novel to follow adequately the story of Vale. The difference between one man and another is so little that I could come to no other conclusion than that dear Edward was right and that women cannot be adjusted a judged an aesthetic sense man i said to jujaran possesses an aesthetic sense but he is not an aesthetic animal like cat's horse or women and he had answered me that the woman's point of view is different from man's an argument that calls into question the reality of the visible world i don't think the point has ever been fairly argued out However this may be, I have never been able to get it out of my head that women are idealists and that it is their natural idealism which enables them to ignore our ugliness extraordinary, I said, for looking into Doris's face. I could see that she was pleased and happy and thought came into my mind that if Lewis Hawken were to see us together he would be astonished by it for it had always been his conviction that no woman could ever love me. I remembered this his hardly concealed pity of my ugliness his sudden inspiration that i should grow a beard for my chin deflected and how i had been taken to a tailor and instructed whether when the clothes came home how i must lean against the doorpost to look through the ballroom the company should be gazed at with indifference and nonchalant air he said attracted women and many years of my life were spent trying to imitate him Time, he said to me, wears away everything, even ugliness. You will be more interesting after 30 than before. And it was he who told me that Goethe had said, we had better take care what we desire in youth, for in age we will get it. The pedant that was in Goethe muddied this utterance, we do not choose our desires, he would have, should have said. If we desire in youth ardently, our desires will be fulfilled in age. But what is is truth? The sage has often asked, and the assassin in me regretted Doris's taste for elderly men, and stopping before the Amois de l'Aglace at Orlais, I had felt intensely that this love story was no frolic of nymph and satyr, but a disgraceful exhibition of beauty and the beast. Theories have, however, availed us nothing, and it was not till several months after parting with Doris that I began to reconsider this important question. Important, for no man lives who can say he is not interested in the question when a man should begin to try, how shall I put it, well to avoid unplatonic love encounters. But is an encounter ever platonic? A question of grammar grammarians. For me, it is to tell that a few months after my return to Dublin, a lady called to see my pictures and that the encounter of our lips sent the blood rushing to my head and so violently for ten minutes I lay where I had fallen on the sofa, holding my splitting temples. My time for love encounters is over, I said, reaching out my hand to her sadly. She was too frightened to answer, and after proposing a glass of water, was glad to get away out of the house. A sigh escaped me. My head was quieter. And struggling to my feet, I stood by the window, watching the hawthorns blowing. At last, words came to me. Love's period is over for me. Life is forever changing, and very little remains after fifty for a man, and still less for a woman. We are forever dying. Woolly, woolly bear is succeeded by the cricket bat. The bat is followed by the rather gun, the horse, the girl. Then, between fifty and sixty, we discover that our love life is over and done. Our interest in sex, however, remains the same, but it is an intellectual interest changed, transformed, lifted out of the flesh. Our eyes follow the movement of the body under the silken gown and well-turned neck and shapely bosom please us, and we like to look into the feminine eyes and read the feminine soul, but we do not kiss the point of White's shoulders when thoughtless ladies lead us away after dinner into a corner of shadowy drawing room and cry in our ears, no, all is not over yet. I wandered out into the garden, finding consolation in the thought that one does not give grieve for a lost appetite for a lost power for a lost force horrible i said and my eyes wandered over my garden for the month was october the dahlias dahlias were blackening and the macalamas daisies were growing slattern soon there would be no flowers left but the flower that never fails to remind me of the mops which with which coachmen wash their carriage wheels the swallows must be by now half away 
across the Mediterranean. Soon they will be nesting among the stones of Cheops Pyramid, and thoughts for returning to myself, I said, my mother used to say that I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Celibacy is set above all the other virtues in Ireland, and the Irish people will listen to my exhortations now that I have become of the equal of the priest, the nun, and the ox. Chastity is the prerogative of the prophet. Why no man can tell, and dear Edward, to whom the virtue of chastity is especially dear, believes that it was the stories of what the newspapers would call my unbridled passions that had caused the Irish people to turn a deaf ear to my exhortations that they should speak Irish and write Irish, and to my prophesying that a new literature would arise out of the new language or the old language revived. My thoughts unfolded and I remembered how strangely I had been moved the night in the temple when Edward said he would like to write his play in Irish. The tale of a town had brought me to Tillura and I had caught sight of Kathleen de Houlihan in the dusk over against the Buran Mountains as I returned through the beech woods and the dank bracken. The rewriting of the tale of a town had awakened the Irishman that was dormant in me and the Boer War had turned my love of England to hatred of England and a voice heard on three different occasions had bidden me pack my portmanteau and return to Ireland. The voice was one that had been had to be obeyed, but Ireland had not listened to me and until now it seemed that I had misread the signs. But nature is not a humorist. She intended to redeem Ireland from Catholicism and has chosen me as her instrument and has cast chastity upon me so that I may be able to do her work. I said, as soon as my change of life becomes known to the women of Ireland, will become will come to me crying master speak f- to us for at the bidding of our magicians we have borne children long enough may we escape from the burden of childbearing without sin they will ask me and i will answer them ireland has lain too long under the spell of the magicians without will without intellect useless and shameful and despite despised of nations I have come into the most impersonal country in the world to preach personality, personal love and personal religion, personal art, personality for all except for God. And I walked across the greenswood afraid to leave the garden and to heighten my inspiration I looked towards the old apple tree, remembering that many had striven to draw forth the sword that Watan had struck into the tree about which Hunding had built in his hut. Carnal, Parnell, like Sigmund, had drawn forth it forth, but Wotan had allowed Hunding to strike him with his spear, and the allegory became clearly clearer. I asked myself if, if I were Siegfried, son of Sigmund, slain by Hunding, and if it were my fate to reforge the sword that lay broken in halves in Mimi's cave. It seemed to me that the garden filled with tremendous music, out of which came a phrase glittering like a sword suddenly drawn from its sheath and raised defiantly in the sun. And then for some reason there's a bar of sheet music as if the average reader can read that sheet music and know what music struck his ear at that moment because George Moore is an absolute wanker. And that's the end of chapter 12. But, wait, the day is not done. The book is not done either. And we're just reading as much as we can per day. I've got a few minutes right now before dinner's ready. Um, So I'm going to keep reading chapter 13. Then I'm going to have dinner. Then I'm probably going to watch TV. And later tonight I'm going to come back and we're going to finish chapter 13. Um, So, here we go. 13. Since the day I walked into my garden saying, Highly favoured am I among authors. My belief had never faltered that I was an instrument in the hands of the gods. But the chosen of the gods are always given needful means for the accomplishment of the gods' mighty purpose, and for many months I had stood perplexed, but never doubting. I had striven to fashion a story and then a play, but the artist in me could not be suborned. Davitt came with a project for a newspaper, but he died, and I had begun to lose patience, to lose spirit, and to mutter, I am without hands to smite, and such like, until one day, on coming in from the garden, the form which the book should take was revealed to me, but an autobiography, I said, is an unusual form for a sacred book, but is it? My doubts quenched a moment after in a memory of Paul, and the next day, the dictation of the rough outline from the temple to Moore Hall was begun, and from that outline decided upon, in a week of inspiration, I have never strayed, I had not been to Moore Hall for many years, and loath to go there, had often said to Miss Goff, Why should I go to Moore Hall? For it is all mirrored in memory. All the beautiful curves of the bay are before me, all along Kiltoom and Connor Island. But if the lake hasn't changed, the country has, 
and you'll bring back many new impressions and moods. You may be right. The gentry have gone, and the big houses are in ruins, or empty or sold to nuns and monks, who are the only people who can afford to live in fine houses. Balinfad is now a monastery. You'll see Balinfad. I know it as well as Moor Hall, but you haven't seen it as a monastery. You might be right. I'll go. Nature is full of surprises. Prolific mother of detail, I'll go to thee. Balanfad lies away to the left between Bala and Manula, and on stepping out of the train I said to take in Balanfad would mean a round of four or five miles. I will instead drive over from Moor Hall, but where is the colonel's gig? And overtaking the porter, I laid hand on his shoulder and he told me that if the colonel's gig did not arrive soon, my best chance of getting a car would be in the village. He promised that as soon as his work was finished, he would go down and inquire, but he was afraid Johnny McCormack had gone to Westport. And if Johnny wasn't at home, the only thing to do would be to telegraph for a car to Bola. And Bola, being seven miles away, I should have to wait an hour and a half at Manula Junction, watching grey sky and bridge, listening to the plaint of telegraph wires. The porter said he thought he heard a yoke coming up the road. He'll cross the bridge over Bayant, and the bridge became at once the object of interest to me. It's his yoke right enough. You'll be off now in no time, and these words were spoken in a tone that convinced me the man was conscious of his melancholy lot but I couldn't stop at Malula to keep him company. As soon as I left, he would be as lonely as before, and the colonel's groom, being anxious to excuse himself for being late, told me he had gone to Daraneni to sleep with his wife overnight. I wonder where the station master and the porters live. Are you after leaving anything behind you, sir? No, I was merely wondering what they do when not at work at the station. There are only two trains in the day. The boy thought there were three, but he would be able to find out the grocers. So there is a shop in Mandula. We'll be passing it in a minute, sir. We're just going into the village now. Nobody was about. We saw neither cat nor dog nor pig in the muddy street. The groom mentioned, however, that the colonel knew the priest, and as soon as we passed his chapel, the fields began again, uneventful little fields, for there was neither tree nor brook, to be seen, nor anyone at work in them. Great stones had rolled down from the walls into boreens, leading from the main road up a landscape that it would be flattering to call hilly. It was merely a little tumbled. Over the hillside a cabin showed sometimes, and at last a dog bounded out of one, and I said, Where there's a dog, there's a man, and where there's a man, a woman isn't far off. Isn't that so? The boy did not answer, and a seemingly he could not be persuaded it into talk of any interest, I continued my survey of the country, noticing for lack of something else to do that it had flattened out without becoming a plain, and that the clouds were gathering on the horizon in a mass foretelling a downpour. But to mention that we were in for a wetting would only provoke a monosyllable from the boy, who, on the whole, the better chance of conversation seemed to be in comparison between the Manula and the Bola Road. The colonel thinks this is the easier road. Okay. Be right back. Dinner is buzzing. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. Uh, the Colonel thinks this is the easier road. It doesn't seem to be quite so hilly, but it is treeless, whereas on the Bola Road there are trees nearly all the way to Moor Hall. Belinda, by the way, Mr. Lulu and Bake has settled amongst the Belindal fad, hasn't he? So I've heard, tell Sir. And how do the country people like that? And they are going to get their estate divided between them? The boy called to the pony, and I had to repeat the question. The Bunks is giving fine wages at Balanfad, but how much they were paying he could not tell, and I tried to forget his presence remembering that on the road of the Bala we leave Ali Athy Valley on the right, and I took pleasure in recalling Sir Robert Blossom's Lady Harriet. Their children I never knew. A little farther on was Brown Hall. Edith and Alice were beautiful girls. The Brown Hall and the Balanfad estates were contiguous, and Joe Blake Going off to Castlebar races with his arms round his serving maid's waist rose up in my mind as if it had been yesterday, and two miles farther up the road is Ballygrass, our post town. The mail coach used to change horses there, 
and I remembered my mother reining in her pony so that we might have a good view of the coach as it came swinging round the bend. The men that clipped horses lived in Balaglass, in a cottage, with a pretty flower garden in front and a rare thing in Mayo, and from the gate of Tower Hill to Carnican the road is wooded, between Carnican and Moorhall the hills are naked and the Annie's River dribbles through the low-lying fields under Annie's Bridge to Love Carrar. We shall turn into the Castlebar Road presently, shan't we? Yes, sir, round the Cloger. Cloger, the name carried my thoughts over the years to the time when we went thither to gather cherries and were suffered to tear down branches unreproved. There were four girls at Clover, Helena, Lizzie, Livy, and May. Lizzie was the merriest, and her inventiveness won my father's admiration for needing a hearth rug and her dollhouse. She sat up, set a trap and caught a mouse. My father delighted in this association of images, a mouse skin rug for a dollhouse, and as we drove toward Moore Hall, it seemed to me that I could see Cloger and its dead girls quite plainly. No more than a little mist had come between us. In another instant I shall be pondering on life and its meaning, I said, and looked round for something in the landscape to which I might direct the lad's attention. May we not hope for a fine day after all, I asked him, and the question seemed legitimate enough, for at that moment a ray lit the worn field in which a yo bleated after her lamb to come at once to relieve her udder. He did not answer, so I pressed with him. The lamb is the first sign of spring. The lamb comes before the daffodil. Do you know the flower? Do you mean the daffy down dilly, sir? That's what old Betty MacDonald used to call them. We're just turning into Cloger Road, sir. Yes, and yonder is the police station. And beyond is the crossroad. To the right, Castle Bar. To the left, Karnakun. You've a fine memory, God bless it, Your Honour. The whitewash of the Cloger Police barracks struck through the trees the same as forty years before and I began to wonder what answer the boy would make if I were to tell him that the trees had not grown a foot within forty years. I suppose the police are always after the girls now as they were in my time and the boy answered me. Them fellows do be too busy oiling their quiffs to put the cometer on the girls. As soon as we pass the barracks, I said, we shall turn to the left and there will be hazel bushes and rocks on both sides of the road and about 200 yards farther on we shall get a blink of Carnican Lake where the hill drops. But the groom was not listening and I fell to thinking of the pretty brooks on one seas in England purling and curling between low green banks and shadowed by willow trees. The willow follows the brook and the Irish landscape lacks brooks and willows. Lakes are not in my temperament, I said, and my set myself to remembering the many different lakes that we catch sight of from our roads, and then my thoughts were whisked away to Dominic Brown, who went to New Zealand, taking with him a bottle of hazel woods for walking sticks forty years ago, and did not write to me till he discovered that he could trace me no further back than Charles V. But himself went back to Charlemagne, a wonderful thing life is, I said, and began to notice the endless stone walls between Moorhall and Manula, loose walls dividing little fields with a hawthorn growing in one corner and two magpies flying whither. The people and the country are still savage, I amused, and Ireland is without pleasant objects to look upon, though why there have been windmills in Ireland it would be difficult to say, for there is plenty of wind. In my childhood there were a few water mills, and I was pleasing to recall the day when the governess and the colonel and myself had tripped over the tower hill to watch the mill wheel, but long ago that mill stopped working. Yonder is Carnican Lake, behind a scrubby hillside with the pines foment it, and the groom would say if he could be persuaded into speech. The lake seemed smaller than I remembered it, but he could not tell me if it were drying up. I looked forward to the crossroads, and it was Pleasant to see that the Smith Forge was still there in Grayson's house, one of my tenants, the tenant of Bolintubba, a wealthy man of 40 years ago. For he could afford to lend me £200 money spent during my minority, the chapel, sound up in the village of Nanoa, and the furniture of the trees about it was ragged as when the carriage used to turn in the gateway of the Smith's house and three or four cabins and sagging roofs were still in the village of Canacon. Nothing had been added or taken away, and I looked out for the house 
Licence to sell beer and tobacco, it was there as dark as the dismalness of your threshold that the many moralists would approve, and above it was the great wall of the ball alley denounced by Father James Brown in his sermons. You think I don't be hearing your brogues about the doorways, and after I have gone up the steps to the altar, he used to say, and now the rivalry's mass had fallen into ruin. Some of the cut stone tumbled out of the high wall, weeds had sprung up in the alley, and Father James's house, to which I liked to ride my pony for a Latin lesson, was in ruin too. The present priest lives higher up the hill in a two-storied house with plate-glass windows, but he does he read Virgil for his pleasure and drink as good port as Father James? Be this as it may, it will always seem to me that a great deal of character of the village of Carnican has gone with the old cottage under the ilex trees, the ball alley, the fa- and Father James Brown. His image was nearly faded from my mind, but I can still recall a high-shouldered man with a large hooked nose and a complexion like a Crofton apple, which whose want it was to talk about the parish in a torn cassock, seeing that everybody was about his business. He would hop over the wall, down into the road, and out of the road again, on to the path, across the triangular field, to the schoolhouse over yonder on the hillside. Why, Mr. Schoolmaster, do you mind being called the schoolmaster? You are the schoolmaster, just as I am the parish priest. I don't mind being called the parish priest. I like being called the parish priest so why should you not like being called the schoolmaster so class distinctions were being beginning to jar even then i said and the school we owe the disappearance of the irish language from this part of the country i remember the children returning from this school along a road that winds through damp fields on one side melting almost into bog about the annie's river on the other side the lanes rise and all the cabins appeared on just as i had left them a little improvement it was noticeable in the last one a sty it used to be in old time amid cesspools unfit truly for an animal to live in my hope often was that no human being would come out of its doorway until we had passed it by and i recalled the satisfaction with which i learned one day that this cabin was not on our guns Oh, sorry, not on our, but on, not on our, but on the Tower Hill property. I anticipated the elder bushes a few yards further on and could still see my mother and the governess in the thoughts, gathering elder flowers, for they were supposed to be good for sunburn, and myself cutting elder stems to make pop guns. A path leads over the hill to the right, and down to the left a boring runs along one of our woods to Raniel, a Tower Hill village by the Annas River and house under the pines where the main road strikes through a wood ranger's lodge, the dwelling of a man called Murphy, whose welcome I used to dread, for like a great big dog he would run out of his house and or saw pit when he heard the wheels of the car, and his bark of welcome followed us until we reached the little bridge that spans the dog brain, bog, <laughs> dog, sorry, spans the bog drain. In those days, a path was a wonderful thing, much more wonderful than a road, and there was an enticing little path by the bridgehead. My governess forbade it, but one day I succeeded in persuading her to wander down, and we had followed it through some young fir trees, and yet undaunted I, undaunted I had implored that we should follow the path through a wood, and it had led us at last to a field golden with buttercups and a drain in which we our wild irises grew a little further on we spied another path leading up the hillside a dark and suspicious path but a girl who dropped a curtsy curtsy told us that it would lead us right on to the stables of the big house we had dared to follow it too and had come upon dells upon open spaces and copses and trees of every kind, silver firs, in whose vasty heights I was certain there would, there were wood pigeons' nests. And as we descended the hill, on the other side, a rowan delayed us. The berries were just beginning to redden, and immediately after, we were in the bog road, which was very well known to us. And at the end of our adventure, red rowan berries and blue irises are not of the same month. Two memories seem to have got mingled. No matter. This wooded hillside was once full of adventure and mystery, and there was a dark place under the turret at the end of the garden into which I did not dare to go, bramble-covered hollows into which I used to peep and then run away, afraid to look back, but 
The day came when I pushed my way through the dark coverts, and lo, there was nothing. Suddenly the pony stopped, and whilst the driver opened the gates, I admired the fine ironwork and the cutstone pillars topped with round balls that the colonel had brought from Newbrook, and it looked handsomer even than I had expected. Though the colonel's praise had led me to expect a good deal, it had opened upon one of the Newbrook avenues a hundred years ago. Cut stone was not so costly then as it was today. Even so, money must have been more plentiful in those days, for the gateway obviously represented a great deal of labour. In those times everything came off the land, mutton, beer, butter, bread, jam. The stewards, gardeners, butlers and huntsmen came from the village. The housemaids too, for feudalism had lasted in Ireland down to 1870, but the peasants have come into possession of the lands from which they were evicted and are now felling the trees of the beautifully timbered parks. Trees 200 years old are being sold at 18 pence apiece at Newbrook, and the trees that I am now looking at, the more whole trees, will soon after my death be felled. The gateway will be offered for sale again, and the cut stone will find its way into cottage walls. The pony stopped in front of the high pitch in the road, jerking me forward in my seats, and began the laborious ascent whilst I looked out for the tall laburnum up whose slippery stem I had never succeeded in swarming. It was among the gone. Some hawthorn bushes I missed too, and very little was left of the great lilac bush that marked another path to the stables. We had looked forward to seeing it when we walked out with our governess, and I remember how one day in midsummer, after chasing through the woods, playing at Red Indians, yelling as we imagined Red Indians yell on the warpath, I had thrown myself into a haycock just by this little lilac bush, and planned the morrow. We would bring out whips with louder lashes and extend our adventure into mysterious places, whither we had never dared to venture. But the next day the woods had lost some of their mystery. When summer returned, the ghouls and fairies had died out of my imagination, and finding that I no longer experienced any desire to crack my whip or to hide in the lilac bush or to roll in the hay, I went to old Joseph to ask him how it this was. He answered, I had grown older. The drive turned round. Dri drive turned round. A hawthorn passed through the, a glade, and I looked out for the next lilac bush, for it was within its perfume that I had had my first religious conversation with the colonel. It, too, was among the gone, but <clears throat> on the left, on the brow of the lawn, were two holy trees, holy trees, into which I had shot many an arrow from the steps. But the laburnums that had once decorated the head of the drive that had they, they died too, died of old age or for lack of human companionship, the laburnum being a familiar tree, question mark. The last ascent <coughs> is steep and the pony walked every step of it, not consenting to trot till he reached the gravel sweep in front of the square Georgian house with the great flight of steps and the pig pillars supporting a balcony. On these steps a couple of red setters were always waiting, a special breed for which the house was famous. Nell rose up before me in her colour, in her shape, in all her winsome ways. A better dog never drew the scent of a covey of partridges or pack of grouse, and she would retrieve a duck far out in the reeds. My father often beat her for coursing hares, but despite these beatings she could not bear to be separated from him, and one evening he pulled her out of the lake into the boat, saying that she had been swimming after us for more than an hour, and that if the large trout had not delayed us outside the reeds, she would have gone on swimming till she sank. Her son, Sadler, the biggest setter ever known, like a Newfoundland he was, and not a single white hair in his coat, used to lie in the hall on the mat. One day my father mentioned that the dog always snapped if he was stirred out of his sleep, and looked round with a bewildered air, and then suddenly seemed to recover himself. Sadler was suffering all this while from rabies, and as soon as the veterinarian surgeon saw him, he ordered him to be shot. Blush and Ruby were the last setters that adorned the steps, and the steps were the only part of the architecture that I ever liked. More hall not being in my early taste, which was for brick and perhaps it is still for houses that have been added to by different generations rather than for grey square blocks with pillared balconies. More hall had always seemed to be a mansion house inferior to Cloger and Tower Hill, but its 
it is superior to either, for it was built in 1780, and it was with a sense of relief that I had heard from the colonel in Dublin that the roof had been raised <clears throat> by my father after winning some big races. The old roof was 15 feet lower, and the slates that covered it were just the small green Irish slates, like tiles mortared together. I learned from him that it had never been completely watertight and constantly leakage, Having rotten, rotted the beams, the roof had to be raised, so my antipathy to this 18th century house was to some extent justified. It was no longer 18th century. Its 18th century proportions had been spoilt by the new roof and by the plate glass that my father had put into the windows of the hall and dining room and drawing room, and I felt sure that if I were ever to come to live in Moor Hall, the whole countryside would have to be searched for the old handmade glass with rings in each pane like blobs of grease in soup. But I had always liked the imposing flight of steps, the iron railings, the pillared balcony, the hall with its atom ceiling, and should have liked the rooms on either side better if they had not been decorated in accordance with Victorian taste. It would seem that my father's journey to the east had been had to extend itself somehow, and being a clever man of many aptitudes, he had designed a Greek room in an interval between racing and politics. His room had filled my childhood with admiration, but the straw colour and the blue-grey chosen for the walls had faded in the course of 40 years and the decorations that had come from Dublin when the colonel went <clears throat> into his residence at Moore Hall had failed to divine the original tints in the faded. The colonel had warned me that they had failed, but I was not prepared for so complete a failure and the somewhat coarse, very nearly vulgar appearance that had been given to the room set me thinking that perhaps it would be well to replace all this plaster of Paris with a pretty French paper, but who could restore the Adam ceiling, I asked myself, as I crossed a hall of fine proportions, and untouched I muttered as I went into the dining room, my father's pilasters and parquets in variegated woods displeased me, and I felt certain that if more hall were to be the end of my life, the drawing room and dining room would have to be brought into harmony with the hall, and the roof lowered some ten or fifteen feet. My father was too near the Georgian period to appreciate it, I added, and raising my eyes from the carved merman and mermaid on either side of the fireplace to my ancestor in the red coat, I began to wonder if the painting was Spanish. Be that as it may, my grandfather is a Wilkie for sure, and just as I had arrived at this conclusion, the colonel bounced in, fresh and rosy, from the farmyard, all breaches and gaiters. And anxious to show me round the house, and I followed him into the hall, it opens on to a wide passage with a staircase at either end, and off this passage there were four rooms. And our old schoolroom, the water closet, and two more rooms opening at one into the other, and known as the doctor's and the priest's room, all these rooms the colonel had thrown into one and brought down grandfather's bookcases and set them along the walls, achieving in this way a fine room, no doubt, but a long, narrow room is un-Georgian, the character is a house, is unimportant as in a man. No one sits in a long, narrow room. The fireplace is necessary at one end, so while our left side is freezing, our right is being roasted. Rooms should be square, there can be no doubt about it, and the present library is at another disadvantage. It overlooks a backyard, a desert place surrounded by high walls. The top of the walls spiked like a jail. This desert place was once set around the outhouses. The scullery opened out into the yard, and the hen house was next to it. There was the wood house, and on the other side of the gate was a turf house, and in the right-hand corner I remember the great chimney of the brew house where William Mulholland's father brewed the household beer, but that was before my time. Our beer came from Ballinrobe in the 60s, our beer now comes from Dublin. In old times the backyard was the centre of activity, the water for the house was brought from the lake in a water barrel, the cart stood in the yard with the mule boy beside it, and when the maids had filled their cans, he put the mule into the shafts and went away to the lake again, leaving them to exchange words with the garden boy, their gossip interrupted by the voice of the cook at the arrival of the ass from the bog with creels of turf, which the turf boy would carry up the back stairs, emptying his load into great barrels that stood on different landings, filling with special care the barrel in Joseph Appleby's 
pantry, and I think it was Joseph who told me that these vats had come from Spain filled with port and sherry, and my thoughts passing into dialogue, I said, you have read all the family papers and can tell when these importations of wine ceased after our great-grandfather's death, probably the colonel would could not tell me if this were so, and so inveterate a dreamer is he that he led me to the pantry window to ask me if it would be better to rebuild the house or cover it in the yard. Cover in the yard, I said, why not? A series of arches and a terrace on the top and a flight of steps would serve from the higher to the lower terrace and on one either ha- on either hand vases, all rare pieces of sculpture. I said, the colonel looked distressed, but how would the yard underneath be lighted by side windows? Jesus. This just keeps going. Oh, I can't. Fucking hell. Like, what is he talking about? Just gonna have a look. Let me let me scroll down here. I just need to. Um. All right, that's actually, that has put the wind back in my sails. I've just realized. I thought we had about five chapters to go. We have one and a half chapters to go, including, like, we're halfway through this chapter at the moment. So, I thought there was 19 chapters in, um, in book three, but there's 14. I read the Roman numerals wrong. So tomorrow's chapter 14, and that's the last chapter. All right, well, then we stop here in this weird spot, halfway through the second last chapter. Tomorrow, I guess tomorrow we'll read one and a half chapters again, and we will finish this book. And I just, like, can you believe, can you believe that right now we are in the second last chapter? We're in the final pages of this book. And what the fuck is he talking about? Like, what the fuck is he talking about right now? <laughs> what is he... What... Can you imagine being this close to the end of your autobiography and just saying this stuff? Like, the last ascent is steep and the pony walked every step of it, not consenting to trot till he reached the gravel sweep in front of the square Georgian house with the great flight of steps and big pillars supporting a balcony. On these steps, a couple of red setters. Like, just actually, that bit I chose then was so boring, but actually one of the, probably the more interesting things because there was things in that sentence. But just, just, but I had always liked the imposing flight of steps. I just skipped 10 minutes then. And he's still talking about the steps. The iron railings, the pillared balcony, the hall with the atom ceiling, and should he have liked the rooms on either side better if he had not decorated with admiral. Like, it's just... It's just fucking shit. This guy is stupid. Oh, it makes me so angry. I, but I can't believe... I'm so glad that, to, that we're at the second last chapter. I literally thought there was five chapters to go. And I'm so happy that I just realized that there's one and a half. It almost makes me want to keep reading right now, but I'm not going to because I don't also don't want to do that. All right. Well, um, thanks for listening, I guess. I can't imagine anyone is listening, but thanks for listening. Bye.